0: One, two, three.
1: Welcome to Three Song Stories, the show that builds biographical bridges between our guests and you with the help of some of the songs that have become landmarks in their lives and their life stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is Brian Schreck. Brian's a music therapist at the Norton Cancer Institute in Louisville, Kentucky, and has been professionally serving people with a wide range of illnesses since 2004. He received a Bachelor of Arts in Music Therapy from Berklee College of Music in Boston and a Master of Arts in Music Therapy from New York University. He pioneered music therapy services at St. Vincent's Catholic Hospital Medical Center in Manhattan, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, and the Norton Cancer Institute there in Louisville. Brian says he has a passion for palliative care and for supporting patients and their families through the end of life and into bereavement. Part of his work involves using the sounds of a patient's life to create individualized recordings and projects for patients and their families and loved ones including using stethoscopes and microphones to capture heartbeats that he weaves into musical compositions for them. I met Brian while appearing as a guest on Louisville Public Media's radio show In Conversation back in February. Brian was a fellow guest, and the topic of that day's show was songs of love and heartache, just in time for Valentine's Day. And about 15 minutes into that show, I thought to myself, we've got to get this guy into the Three Song Stories chair. Hey there, Brian. How are you on this wonderful Friday?
0: Oh, I'm great. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. It was nice to meet you on the radio a while back. Uh, um, you know, I, as soon as I heard you talking about what you do, I thought we need to get you on Three Song Stories. So I'm happy it's all worked out.
0: Oh, I love it so much. I, I, I love this program and I love In Conversation, too. I, I just love I love sharing any stories about music. So how old were you when Shrek came out? <laughs> well, it's amazing. I, I just started having kids, so I had no idea that they were going to be famous in their schools growing up. Um, but I, I was in my, my mid early to mid-20s. It had to come up a little bit, right? Oh, it did. Yeah, all the time. And I still even say it today. There's patients I work with that I'll say, you know, better out than in, just like, you know, Shrek movie. <laughs> Uh, It's a good way for them to remember my last name as well.
1: That's fantastic. Anyway, I just had to ask. Um, So, (laughs) Brian, where did you grow up and how would you characterize the musical background of your childhood?
0: Wow. So I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, Louisville, um, for others that that don't like that pronunciation. But good old Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I lived there until I was 18 and I'm back now. I've been back for seven years and the music was all over the map. My my parents had all all sorts of records, uh, from Motown to um, you know different different kinds of musicals that they had gone to um, in the seventies and eighties. And a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber was played throughout the house. A lot of um, Stevie Wonder and uh, um, you know just Fifth Dimension and so many th- things. Um,
1: What would be the earliest musical memory you can recall? If we ask you to try
0: to flash back to something that's you know as early as you can get to, Uh, the earliest of me becoming actually a musician, I was in the fourth grade and I was learning how to play the saxophone. And there's two memories with this. One is "Good King Wenceslas." I had to play that solo in a a busy mall during Christmas season. Uh, So just a little little nine year old uh, honking on a saxophone really red faced. Uh, and I remember that vividly, but also remember being thrilled by it. Like it was a thrilling experience. And another one is similar to that, uh, which I think is what got me into music therapy. My mom would deliver communion in a nursing home inside of our neighborhood. And I would walk along with her and I would get to know people. And I would see, uh, you know, the same people every time we went and became close with some of them. And it was a good relationship to to get as a little person to know what aging looks like and to look you know what what the the sights and smells of a nursing home can be and kind of demystifying and, and taking the the worry out of it um because it can be kind of scary I guess at times. Um but she could tell I was bored one day and said, Why don't you go practice your saxophone in the day room? And I saw this older gentleman wake up and he couldn't believe what he was seeing. Uh, this little guy honking out some melodies on the saxophone. <laughs> so he started he stood up and started dancing, and he grabbed this gal that was next to him in a wheelchair and started kind of waltzing with her and I was like, "Something is happening right now there there is something that is kind of magical, I think that's happening that m- music is moving them physically as well as emotionally. So I think I was hooked back then with my own thrills of of performing and all the things that come along with that as well as. Seeing it stir someone to from sleep to dancing within, you know, a few minutes—that's amazing. Um, uh, do you remember the first
1: music you saw performed live that wasn't maybe like uh, at a church or something like that?
0: Yes, it was at the the Redbird Stadium. This is in um, the early eighties. They would have quite big concerts every now and then during the summer. And my first big concert I remember going with my parents was the Four Tops and the Temptations. And i was blown away because these are songs that we'd listened to at home and then seeing them live in person and even though we were you know up in the up in the stands it was it was amazing to hear how loud it was and how the reaction of everyone that was watching and listening it was incredible.
2: I recently uh saw the four tops open for the temptations uh two years ago now, yeah two Decembers ago uh, wow. it was my first like traditional concert i've been to like symphony orchestras but this was like my first concert concert i'm a big Motown guy uh temptations is where it's at for me so like whenever anybody brings up the temptations on the show i gotta say something but yeah no i saw the four tops performing i saw the temptations going out there and i had like my own suit and it was like a light baby blue kind of shiny temptation style too it was a great time for me
1: as soon as you I said Temptations, Brian, I saw Jared <laughs> leap up to the microphone. I knew it was coming. Um, so saxophone, did you start on that because that's what you wanted to start on? Or is that just happened to be because a band or something, that's where you started on? And I guess the question is, is you know what came after that?
0: Yeah, it, it, well, there's a picture of me around four years old holding a racquetball racket and, and doing my best uh, Jimi Hendrix, um, playing it left-handed and, and strumming along. So I think the guitar has always been in my heart a little bit. Uh, But the band, yeah, it was a band at a school and it was kind of unusual that our our Catholics, you know, neighborhood school had a band. And it was really just because of this wonderful woman named Jean Whaley, who on her own decided to create a band at the school. And she would write out all the parts in pencil. And then uh, once we learned them, uh, she would take us on these little mini tours around the city and we play, like like I said before, at, at the malls. And at at different, you know, bigger places around town that that had just regular folks walking around and just we would get out a half day of school. We would go out to lunch. And I was like, I I think I can do this. I think I want to be a musician if we get to skip school and then go out to lunch. That's that's what I'm talking about. When did the guitar hit your hands like for real? For real, when my my older brother, who I'm going to talk about later, um, he took lessons in high school and he didn't progress because he didn't practice really. He, he had a funny teacher that they would uh, mostly just sort of hang out and, and improvise a little bit. So when my mom asked what, you know, play something for me, Joey, and he uh, played the very beginning of wish you were here by Pink Floyd. And that was it. It was just the, the very front intro to that song. And she's like, what else do you do in the lesson? He's like, well, he lets me smoke cigarettes. And then, you know, we, we hang out and I'll play that riff <laughs> a little bit and then he jams. And then, you know, the 30 minutes are up. So she's like, I'm not paying for this anymore. So the next day it was laying on my bed because I would mess with it when he wasn't playing and he just laid it on my bed. So to me, that was the first day I was, I think I was in seventh grade, so I was about 12. Hmm. Did you take right to it? I took right to it. I, I started messing around and as soon as my uh, ear played Come As You Are by Nirvana, I was like, oh, I think I can do this. Hmm. Uh, what was the first music you owned yourself?
1: Do you remember owning a, Uh, a CD or perhaps a cassette. I'm trying to guess
0: at the timing. Sure. So I was born in 1980. So I'm the youngest. So I had older siblings. So vinyl was all over the place and as well as cassettes. So they listened to a lot of, um, you know, Duran Duran, um, Prince Bruce Springsteen. and, And, and then my brother got more into hard rock and, you know, early Metallica and local punk rock. Um, but the first C, like, CD I remember buying—it's funny—it was um, a, a rap uh, soundtrack from the movie Trespass. Okay. And I don't know why. Uh, I, I, I think I liked a lot of the artists that were on it, and I liked that it was a compilation. Um, but a lot of my early purchases at Target uh, had parental advisories on them, and they're usually cassette tapes of, you know, Easy E, uh, DJ Quick, um, all sorts of things that you know I wasn't really. Supposed to be listening to, but the the beauty of a headphone and, and the ability to, to get out of the house and get on your bike and cruise around um, made, made all those those stories come to life to me
1: hmm
0: um, We're going to get to your first song, but last question: um,
1: do you still play the saxophone if somebody you? Sure into... Oh you do yeah, okay. When...
0: you don't have to yeah, knock so... off the rust. you actually do. <laughs> No, and I played it, I played it all the way through uh through Berkeley where I went to in Boston. And then I I continued uh in New York when I was there as well at NYU. Um and I but it's funny, my mom, I, I would be in kind of like indie and, and hardcore and punk rock bands in high school and I you know, was only playing guitar and she'd be like, Bring your bring your saxophone and every cool band, you know, that I grew up listening to always had a saxophone player. And I'd be like, Mom, you don't know what you're talking about. And then I would I'd, you know, as soon as I became an adult out of, you know, out of that scene, every cool thing I've gotten to do as an adult in regular music out, outside of music therapy has been on the saxophone. Hmm. So she was right.
1: She was right. Moms are right sometimes. You're um, usually right. Okay. So let's get to your first song. This is the Bangles song, which
0: I have fond memories of the video of. So what's the deal? <laughs> Same. Uh, so MTV was still very alive and well when this as you as you know from watching the video back then. I at this time was in early middle school, sixth to eighth grade, and on Friday nights we would typically a group of, of buddies would go to Champs Roller Rink, which was in the Westport village in Louisville, Kentucky. And when this song would come up, it meant that it was a couple skate. So hearing this song makes me feel all of the anxiety that was alive back in in, in the sweaty palms and the heart pounding because you had to, to choose someone. And, and of course, we knew, you know, the people that we'd be asking, but it was still something, you know, a, a girl that you would sit next to in math class that you don't say too much during the day. And then that night you're asking if you can hold your hand for a whole song uh, was just a lot. So it's it's a it's a visceral memory of, of feeling the cold air condition uh, roller rink and the old carpet and uh, hearing the video games and, and all the things that were happening. And just like that, that perfect middle school moment in time where everything kind of slows down and you hopefully you'll get a yes. And I remember there's a few different gals that we kind of rotate the couple's skates and I was, I became good buddies with all of them and I'm still good friends with, with two of them to this day. Um, And I can't wait to tell them about this, but Lisa Kaufman and she had her cousin, Laura Kaufman, uh, and then another girl named Sarah Baker. And it was just incredible to, you know, we couldn't be further apart, probably holding hands, but to have a whole song where you are just being with someone in the earliest of, you know, kind of an intimate moment of just being like, there's something happening right now. I don't know what it is. I'm terrified, and I love it at the same time. So it just brings all of those feelings back to my life. And having four whole minutes to share that with someone was more than exciting, as a you know a, a 13 year old. And the,
1: to this song, cheers to that! All right, well let's listen to it. I have some early skating rink memories as well. You painted the picture well. Um, This is Eternal Flame by the Bengals from their 1988 album Everything. This is Brian Shrek's first song here on Three Song Stories.
0: When was the last time you listened to that closely, Brian? uh, Right when I was filling this out for the show. (laughs) But prior to that? (laughs) Prior to that, it had been a long, long time. Hmm. Um, but it popped right up when I was thinking of songs that bring me back to a certain place oh, isn't that amazing how that works I mean
1: you know mm-hmm. you you know that on a multiple levels more than most of our guests probably um, you know did you ever get to do any like dancing to that in high school later because I was I can't that song came out when I was a sophomore in high school so it was definitely a slow dance song in high school.
0: Yes so yeah it came up at dances and it was it there's such a powerfulness to like the the bridge that comes in towards the end that that you do start to kind of move faster than if it was just a slow, slow song. Uh, Yeah. It's a magical song. And I always had a big crush on the singer of the Bengals anyway. And it just kind of brought, brought all those early developmental feelings uh, in in one little place. So yeah.
1: Yeah. My, uh, I had a huge crush on the Bengals singer too, that in walk like an Egyptian when she did the eye look thing to the right. Oh, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, you know. And there's people listening who know as well. Um, Have you played that song uh, for your kids or are they old enough to
0: care? Uh, You know, it's very funny that you bring that up. They're almost 17 and 14. Oh, so they are old
1: enough to care. The way you described it before was they sounded maybe they were still little.
0: Yeah, they they care a lot about music. And usually when I have a pick, they kind of roll their eyes. But that's that's just where we are in, in, in our little little place right now as well. <laughs> hmm. So um, in high
1: school, were you uh, a musician kid? Were you a band kid? Was that sort of your defining
0: feature or like, where did you fit in? It was, yeah. It was first period of marching band and then concert band and then jazz band. Um, yeah. So it was a big part of my my high school life um, all the way through senior year. And then on top of that, I was, I started to be in regular just little bands with friends Uh, So I was in a little indie rock band called Canada, and then um, I was in a punk rock band after that called Out. Hmm. How did you come up with the name Canada? I mean, we were just silly. Uh, (laughs) The first song was called Land of Milk and Honey. None of it really made sense. Um, I think we we just thought Canada seemed like a, a nice place.
1: Huh. Well, Canada is Canada is a nice
0: place. I think I'm a Canadian
1: uh, deep down inside somewhere. Um, <laughs> so during those high school years, was music always like your trajectory? Were you going to find your way into music? Did you think you were going to be a performer more traditionally or were you still thinking like the stuff that you'd experienced when you were littler when, you know, when it came to music therapy kind of stuff?
0: Yeah, I think pretty early on, I think I, once I knew that music therapy was an actual profession and that you could get a degree in it, I, I think that is where my brain and heart started to lead the way. Um, and going back to that memory from the nursing home as well. But but yeah, being in these other bands, I knew that even if it wasn't going to be a, a, the primary part of my life, um, I knew that it would always be there with me. But I think... Uh, thinking of it now, I've been a music therapist since, board certified since 2004. Um, I have been a a professional musician my entire life. Um, So I don't really know how to do anything else. (laughs) And I was (laughs) laughing about that the other day. Um, it It is my entire life. I didn't really learn about music therapy
1: until, you know, I don't want to say just a few years ago, but certainly not back in, you know, the 80s or the 90s. You know, when you were first getting into it, was it a a defined field like we think of it today, or was it still considered somewhat out of the norm?
0: It's still a little bit out of the norm we've paved a lot of ways over the last, um, you know, probably 15 years, but the first, the very first, um, degree program started in 1944 up in Michigan. Hmm. So it's been around a long time. And some of the first music therapists were nurses first that were a part of the VA hospital system. And even going back to WW2, they tried to help to redirect pain when they would run out of pain medicine, as well as when they had to amputate on the field. Uh, they would noticed that when the nurse held your hand and sang with you, that it wasn't as terrible. Um, but going back to the beginning, I think there's there's um, music has been therapeutic since its inception. I really do believe that the first song most likely it was probably a lullaby sung from, you know, a parent to a, no- a newborn uh, to help them relax. And in that same cyclical fashion of the parent breathing in a little bit deeper and slowing their breath to sing out a focused intention to help soothe their babe and then them seeing the the baby relax and calm down, I think it then becomes this beautiful system that that inspires both parties that's that makes sense hmm
1: um, you went to boston for your bachelor's degree berkeley college of music was that where you wanted to go Was that like i mean boston's not kentucky like how how no. how was that uh transition or you know why did you go there and what was it like when you got there
0: my dad and I did a little college just little tour. We went down to the University of Georgia, which is one of the oldest music therapy programs. And that was in Athens, and Athens has its own special vibe. And then we went up to Boston just to check out Berkeley. More just to like as a trip versus being like I don't, you know, I don't think you'll get into this program. Uh but I ended up getting in and just being in the city where At the time, it was still a relatively small school, and half of the school is from out of the country, and these small ensembles you would be in, half of the crew would be from all all areas of the world, and all ages, shapes, and sizes, and some of those people that I met became family, and I'm still very, very close to a lot of them to this day, and now that they know what i do and do this in a way that i I really tried to lead our field in music therapy they've been beautifully uh involved in some really really spectacular moments where we've connected artists with patients that are either stuck in the hospital or are really having a hard time and just even a few seconds on the telephone are a one-way message saying hey thinking about you you know, we love you. We're wishing the best for you. Just is the memory that is indelible that they're already your fans, but now it's, it's fans for life.
1: When you were there, those first few years, uh, you know, a music therapy degree at Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Are you also is it is it like performance and theory? But then the music theory, I mean, music therapy and the science. Like, how does that all break out for somebody who wants to be a music therapist versus the other ways somebody might go to school there?
0: Sure. So the first two years are kind of the same for everybody. It's a lot of playing. You have a private lesson you have ensembles and then you have your music theory classes. And then since it's also a college, you would have one general ed semester as well. So you do end up getting a bachelor of arts um, no matter what your, your, um, your end road is. But a lot of folks that I, you know, that were more performance based went there to find their, their people. And then they left to go either on tour or to start making music and, you know, there's a lot of folks that that I knew back then, like John Mayer, who went there for a semester or two, and then and then is who he is now. And um, uh, my good buddy Mark Kelly became uh, he was my roommate in New York for a while as well. He's now in, in the Roots band on the Jimmy Fallon show. Hmm. Uh, my, my next door neighbor Matt Mangano is the bass player in the Zach Brown band now. Hmm. Um, and my buddy Casey Drisen plays all over the world with with beautiful people uh, and is a tremendous, tremendous musician. But yeah, there was a, a small crew and, and my buddy, Carrie Rodriguez as well, who I mentioned in the, on the last time we were hanging out, Michael. Um, but it, yeah, it, these, these people are connected to other folks. And if I, if someone would come up that is important, that I could help connect the dots uh, we've made some really magical moments happen.
1: Do you have any musical memories associated with your time in Boston that aren't about school, going to see a concert, oh, sure. something like that, what pops into your head you know
0: first and foremost uh probably d'angelo's voodoo uh was a big one um and then what, the is, Outcast, what, what is what is what is d'angelo's voodoo d'angelo uh is an r and b artist, and his album oh. voodoo sorry i i i didn't know what we were talking about <laughs> to clarify. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah. So D'Angelo is an amazing singer and his band on this record, Voodoo, is incredible. It's uh, Charlie Hunter and Pino Palladino and some of these other folks that a lot of my friends, we would listen to that record kind of in awe just because of how smooth and perfect and fresh and behind the beat and all of these things that fell together in this way that I feel like only someone like D'Angelo could do. And it, it's obvious that he's very inspired by, you know, people like Prince and and other people like that that are also so amazing. Uh, but that album just kind of blew blew us all away. Hmm. Did you go straight from Boston to New York when you did your master's? I worked for a year in Boston before I went to New York. And at that time I worked at, it's called the Franciscan Children's Hospital. The Kennedy Day School was, I was a teacher's assistant and I got that job because one of my professors at Berkeley was the music therapist at this hospital school. So she let me, she gave me a key to the office and said, you know, when you have time, you can bring the class in here and and do whatever music therapy stuff you want. If I'm not having a class. Um, So that was a beautiful year of just getting kind of like a, a PhD in life. You know, a lot of these people were my age that we, we served. There was five people in the class. I was 21 and they were around 19 uh, with profound uh, issues, a lot of them um, quadriplegic, um, nonverbal, uh, three of them had G-tubes, and we would toilet them three times a day, um, so that that was something, and then my night job at that same hospital is called the Hope Academy, and the people that were there were, I think, five to 18 years old, they lived there for a while as a kind of an intermediate place to figure some stuff out, but it was more psych based issues. Um, and I would, I would get a lot of my friends from Berkeley to help out with like a talent show with them as well. Um, at the day school, we did a production of Grease one time with some of my music theater, theater buddies with wheelchair choreography. So we, we tried to to really just, you know, bring as much light and love into these places as possible. And, and music was always right on time when anything happened like that. Um, so that that was kind of just a lesson in life. And I got to save money to then go to New York.
1: Um, well, sounds like you've put a lot of good out of the world so far, Brian. Cheers to that. Um, let's do your second song now. Which is your second song?
0: Oh, so it is Unsung by Helmet. And I always love, you know, music therapy kind of uh, full of hun- unsung heroes. And I've always liked loud rock music. And when I was in eighth grade, my best friend, Summit Modi, uh, he has a drum set had a bass guitar. And this was one song that we could play at least the beginning of. So at the beginning of this eighth grade year, we're like, we're going to learn the entire song and we're going to find two other buddies that'll fill up the rest with vocals and guitar. And we managed to ha- have that happen. Um, but we would practice in his basement and his mom was quite strict. Uh, her name was Shetna Modi and she was an amazing, amazing person. She actually uh, just passed away this last year. And um, strangely enough, I got to work with them as my profession as a music therapist as well. So that was an interesting full circle with, with her. Um, but going back to those days in 1993, 1994, we would played the song over and over again in their basement and they had a, a bi-level house. So you could hear everything pretty well, even if we were in the basement. So we wouldn't get to play that long before it got super annoying, but every rehearsal would end with her making this amazing giant home cooked Indian meal. And uh, summit, I remember would, would get kind of upset a little bit when we would leave at different times because this whole house would smell like these very fragrant um, Indian spices. So all of his clothes usually had uh, that smell to it, but I thought it was amazing and delicious. And uh, to me, it wasn't a smell that you should avoid. Um, But this song, I can listen to it. It brings me back to those good old days where she would overfeed us. And, and in their culture, if you finished your plate, that meant that you were still hungry and wanted more. So I just remember being this little guy that was, you know, barely uh you know eighty five pounds and just housing all of this very <laughs> heavy food after we'd played, and then we would try to go play, and I don't know if she did that so that we'd be so fat and and lazy that we wouldn't go back down and jam anymore um but I can almost feel this this whole milk, and I don't think I've had whole milk since then, but she would fill up a pint glass of whole milk, and I remember the first time I was over there drinking it all the way to the bottom and being like, "Oh, I finally finished it." And she filled it all the way back to the top. <laughs> and I was like, Oh no. Um, but it, it, this song, we played it in our Catholic gym for a talent show of very uninterested adults. Uh, if anything, all the teachers that were there with the, the rest of the school, cause the whole school would go. Um, the look on everyone's face was at best disappointed um, at, at, <laughs> At worst, uh, you know, kind of like shaking their head like, I-, I can't believe that they're playing this loud music right now. Um, and the singer that we had didn't sing it like Helmet Singer. He sang it more like a death metal singer. <laughs> so it was even scarier uh, to them. Uh, but all of it was just a win-win for me, even though we we certainly did not win. Um, who won was our, our arch nemesis at the time was this other kid, named chad gillhouse that uh and michael englert they played just a duo instrumental version of i think it was big gun by acdc which was a part of that last action hero movie um which is one of the worst acdc songs i thought uh <laughs> so I, they won and i you know it just turned me off even more but in a hilarious you know a hilarious way um thinking back now um thinking that i was more punk rock than that but in reality acdc is one of the best bands on earth and ever since then you know i've become a huge fan of acdc and you know it's funny to bring that up with those two other knuckleheads
1: well let's listen to this uh helmet song this is unsung from the 1992 album meantime it's brian Shrek's second song here on three song stories it's biography through music no, in a live performance, getting audience feedback can energize the performance um was was it a were you able to maintain the level of intensity that was required with a bunch of people rolling their eyes at you?
0: We did, and on top of that, we were like thirty yards away from them, so we were in the middle of the gym and they were sitting in the bleachers uh so there was no one around us either um It was hilarious if you got yeah, that I was I was grinning the whole time. <laughs> If you got that gang back together right now, could you
1: guys pull that off again? I think we could. Yeah? Yeah. Hmm. Um, <laughs> why, why that song? What was it about that song that made that be the one that you
0: guys decided you needed to learn? Are you just a big, big fan of it? I was a big fan of it, and I, I picked up that beginning bass riff really fast. And the drummer could Summit could handle that uh, very beginning. So once we got that beginning, we were like, I think we can do the whole thing. Hmm. And as it goes on, it doesn't really progress that much. It just kind of gets louder and longer. Uh, so I, I could tell that that was irritating to the audience as well.
1: Yeah, I could see um, that. You painted a really good picture, and I was trying to miss a couple times there. It really just it just goes and goes. we <laughs> were probably just like, come on, at least give us some variation here. <laughs> something. But that's why we could play it, too. Oh, Um, okay. Let's uh, let's come back to the present and uh, tell us about the work that you do there at the Norton Cancer Institute in
0: Louisville. So I'm a a music therapist. It's uh, we we call it expressive arts therapy under behavioral oncology, which is uh, a whole team of advanced practice nurses that are. Um, very much like psychiatrists in some ways where they can manage medicines that can help uh, with mood and depression. Uh, There's social workers who do counseling. There's myself and an art therapist who do one-on-one sessions, whether they are in the hospital having treatment, chemo, or they're in the hospital sick, or I can make, we can both make outpatient outpatient visits just for them to come hang out with us in our our little studios. So we have an, a music studio and an art studio. And a lot of the stuff that we do, we we do focus on people that have advanced cancer. And a lot of the work I do here in this office that I'm talking to you from, we're calling it the Legacy Lab. And we're doing proactive recordings with people for their favorite people and their family and their loved ones. Um, and that could look like a, a whole lot of different things, whether it's Sometimes music is very much in boldface, and sometimes it's not there at all. And since they are adults, they do have a lot of stories, and they want to make sure that they share their words of wisdom. We have a few different protocols that we use. Um, one of them is called Dignity Therapy, and that's based on the work of Harvey Max Chochenoff up in Canada. And it's some brilliant work of just using standardized questions to kind of get to the bottom of what is meaningful to a person. And if they have things that are left unsaid that they would like to, which then leads to further uh, work that we can dive a little bit deeper into. A lot of it's just staying connected with these people and recording is a beautiful way to not just create a legacy and something that will be lasting, but in real time, also connecting people that, May not be able to be together, so a lot of these people have families that are all over the place and grandchildren that they don't see or have not met yet. Uh, so we can even read storybooks uh, and record those and send them to the the unborn grandkids and different stories. Different, um, you know, songs are a beautiful way to contain emotions. Uh, sometimes, if they're not super talkative, we can do more of a sound collage and. We can record their heartbeat and other different sounds of their life and put that together in kind of a, a symphony of life that sounds just like them in a creative way. But it's all over. It's, it's very individualized and kind of based on exactly what makes them tick and what will mean the most to them. And it's over time. So we, we, the, doing this as proactive as possible is helpful in my work because we can then create a lot of really, really important stuff while they still sound like themselves and feel good. Hmm. And some of this we're also researching as well. Um, So, yeah, we made a little documentary about it uh, called The Beat of the Heart, which should be available on Vimeo uh, very soon. And yeah, I'm excited just to share all this kind of unique work and programming that this beautiful hospital believes is as important as I do. You know, I watched
1: the, the longer version of the Beat of the Heart uh, documentary trailer, and, and it's really amazing. And I have pulled from your website um, a couple of the songs that you've made with people and families. Um, and I was wondering if you could pick one of the four. It's the Laura, Jedediah, Charles, and, and Irma. And tell us a little bit about it, and then we can listen to some of it so listeners can understand at least, you know, one aspect of what this means okay
0: uh let's do uh charles jr's light uh fire so this this piece of music was created for a family member's infant who suffered a very unexpected complication after birth he was a twin and uh unfortunately they had to intubate him and after working on him for for an amount of time it he had to be compassionately extubated. So before that happened, uh, this happened to be a, a cousin of mine, and his name's Charlie. Uh, so this is Charles Jr., and he knew of the work that I was doing. And at the time, they were living up in Indianapolis. So I, I drove up there, and I got to spend some time with them and and help Charlie and, and just sort of be with them in that that very challenging moment of time and get to meet little Charles Jr., and then capture his heartbeat and use that as um, kind of the the way that we can move this song into something that is a symbol of the sun rising and the ocean moving constantly as a reminder of that little light that Charles will always be shining on them and the love that will never stop. So it's in the key of sea um, when you, you're listening to an, an infant's heartbeat, it is so fast. It's like a hummingbird. It is literally upbeat. So to me, there's something joyful just in the actual tempo that these little people present in the world. Uh, so the music that was created, I wanted it to feel moving and fun and playing in the key of C on the guitar is fun as well as uh, the xylophone. So so yeah, it's a, it was a gift to the family, but also to just really let the world know that Charles Jr. was here.
1: Well, let's listen to uh, some of it, Jared. That's like really, really touching stuff, Brian.
0: Well, thank you. And I love, I love that we can, we can celebrate these people and, you know, I'll, I'll check in with my cousin, Charlie every now and then. And I think that it, this is just a really special thing that, that they engage with whenever they, they need to. So there's no rules. Um, you know, i talk i about Nick cave sometimes, and he unfortunately has lost two of his uh, children uh, to kind of strange accidents, and he has this beautiful thing that he wrote to one of his fans um, about grief and about how love and grief are intertwined and it it's a bond that is un, it's not negotiable. so if there is grief there if there's love, there will be grief. Um, that's the pact so it's something that that does last forever, but it does change and what I like about these heartbeat songs is that it is moving. So when, when we are feeling stuck, I feel like this can be something that can literally move us to a different place, even if it's just um, a few-minute meditation just to reconnect.
1: About how many of those have you made with people, if you had to guess or or if you, if you know?
0: Well, I know positive to, uh, to this place at the Norton Cancer Institute, I've done 398. Um, before wow. that, prior at Cincinnati Children's, I had done well over 200 as well. So, um, quite a few, I would say around 500 probably.
1: Wow. You have a really intense job, Brian. And
0: and this is just one little part of it. And yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's, it's in the midst of all the other cool things that, you know, we, we do fall in love with these people and we do want to take care of them. Like we would, um, you know, our parents or anyone else that we, that we would want to be taken care of the same way. So, I, I do feel it's an honor to get to know these people, and I learn something from them every day, too. Um, a little little pivot, but
1: in the same world that you're in, are you familiar with the documentary film called Alive Inside? I am, yes. Um, I'm part of the Fort Myers Film Festival, and we actually debuted that film down here when wow. it came out. I don't know. It was like 10 years ago or something. And we played it at the Barber B-Man, which is the big performing arts uh, center here in town and we had the like the, the guy was there you know, you know on the stage after the thing and at the end of that movie like imagine like 500 people in an art center all like crying tears of joy i mean it was unbelievable yes hmm yes i, I can't imagine that and i love it uh and just for the listeners who don't understand it's a guy who goes around to um retirement communities or, you know, assisted living facilities, really. And he puts uh, iPods on people's ears and plays music from when they were younger. And it turns, you know, it brings the, the past out of them and they get up, and nonverbal people dance and sing. And yeah, it's the power of music, right?
0: It is my, my first practicum in music therapy was at the Goddard house in Boston. And it was all, it was specific to a, a dementia and Alzheimer's unit. And we would do big groups and those songs from their era would, it it was like finding buried treasure and kind of like the movie awakenings as well. Uh, It can, it can, it uses, it, it activates all parts of your brain. So these memories are, are, are preserved in a way that it helps bring them right back to that place.
1: So before we get to your third song, let's talk a little bit about concerts. Do you have a peak concert experience from your life so far?
0: Wow. A peak concert. To to attend or to perform in? Uh, Well, let's start with attend. Attend? um, I would say Prince. It was in Nashville. Uh, It was the Musicology uh, Tour and the mix of the crowd was half white half black half young half old everyone just kind of in in lost in a moment of perfect time just watching little prince run around the stage uh he had a, an amazing band uh i think candy was playing the saxophone um blackwell was on drums and There's something just magical about all of it. And I think at at that time he had taken a pause from being a Jehovah Jehovah's witness. So he played some of his more raunchy songs in the middle of it that he hadn't played in a long time live. Um, But yeah, just, just incredible uh, energy. And then after the show, the, the staff handed out the actual album musicology to everyone that attended. So I was like, Prince just knows what he's doing on every level of having us have the best time. And then to give us a free copy of the album, uh, was just like, wow. Hmm.
2: I'm a big Prince fan. And if I'm not mistaken, that whole tour was like a really big deal for, for Prince, uh, personally, like him trying to like re, uh, introduce like what music means to other people and stuff like that. It was like, it was, it was a, I know it was a whole big thing and I'm jealous. Wow.
1: What a, you would mentioned uh, performing. What about, you know, biggest, uh, most memorable concert experience where you were part of the performance?
0: Part of the performance, I was lucky enough uh, being here from Louisville, Kentucky, um, friends with my morning jacket. And we assembled a horn section for their big Bonnaroo uh, midnight to 4 a.m. concert. And uh, it poured down rain the whole time. I couldn't see how many people were there. I, I I called. Um, he became a dear friend. Uh, but Abigail Washburn, who was is married to Bela Fleck, I I called them just to see if there was anyone that because I didn't know a horn section at that time. I was living in Cincinnati, but they asked me to do some horns on a song, uh, on a, just a handful of songs. So I was thinking I could get a, a pedal that would sound like a saxophone quartet. So I was asking. Uh, Abby to ask Bela if she, if they knew of any pedal like that, that they would recommend. And they said, well, you need to talk to Jeff Coffin. So I called Jeff Coffin, uh, who plays with the Flectones, is now the, the saxophone player in the Dave Matthews band. And I called him and kind of told him what was going on. And I was like, I'm looking for um, a horn section. And he's like, well, I'm going to be playing at Bonnaroo that day with Umphreys and McGee. So I'll already be there. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. Would you be interested in playing? And he's like, sure. Uh, how many songs? And I was like, just a handful. And I was like, do you happen to know a trumpet player and a trombone player? And he's like, for sure. So Jeff invited <laughs> me to, to stay with him while we were down there. Um, he wrote out all the parts for all of us. He handled everything like such a huge champ. Uh, I felt like almost an imposter because these were legit Nashville horn players that play with all sorts of people all over the place. And, and then me, who's just buddies with the band, um, And we played some amazing cover songs and a a few of their original songs, Uh, but it was just a a a magical night of weather, of time, of an experience of of feeling the whole uh, inner workings of Bonru coming together at one beautiful kind of pinnacle point of uh, just everyone willing to be wet and hot and and still still stay and, and have such a beautiful time, including myself. Wow. What year was that? Do you know? Do you remember? I think it was, it was around 2008. Wow. So it was probably That's, maybe 2007.
1: I went, to the Bonnar- I went to Bonnaroo in 2008, and me and my wife took my daughter when she was only two and a half. <laughs> wow. And I have this memory because the Sunday of that of that year was Father's Day, and and I'm walking yes, around. I'm walking around pulling my daughter in a, a wagon behind me, and I'm get all these dudes are coming up to me going, "Man, can I take your picture? I want to convince my wife I can bring our kid." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great! And real real, real, quick, real quick before we go on to song three, do you still stay in touch with uh, Abby? I do. Okay. Well, uh, tell her that, uh, that during the early days of the pandemic, the only online live stream that I got sucked into, and it was appointment viewing for me, was her and Bela Bella in the basement with their kids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I watched that, too. I, I couldn't get enough of it. So anyway, I just wanted, wanted to pass that along. Um, okay. Let's do your third song now.
0: Okay. So this is Broke Down Palace. And this, The Grateful Dead just takes me back to a time with my older brother. My older brother was eight years older than me. Uh, He saw The Grateful Dead play at least 15 times uh, during his young adulthood. And he had it in his car quite a bit and would play it as he had to take me around places that my parents didn't feel like taking me. Um, But I do remember vividly August 9th, 1995. I was at marching band practice. It was a hot summer day. And he picked me up around, I don't know, 6 p.m. And he just had this look on his face. And I was like, what's the matter? And he was like, you're never going to get to ha- to experience it. Like, you you missed it. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, Jerry died today. And you're never going to see the Grateful Dead. Like, I got to see them. So you missed out on this whole generation of uh, an opportunity and he he was like i'm so mad i didn't take you the last time i went and i was only 15 at the time so i mean you don't really want to hang out with your 15 year old little brother um but i get it and we it was just a solemn car ride and he put on this song and we just kind of cruised around there we didn't go straight home we just kind of cruised around the neighborhoods and he he liked to smoke cigarettes, and I just remember the the warm summer breeze as it was cooling off as the night kind of came about, and him smoking and just listening to this song and feeling trying to to empathize with him, but feeling this feeling of 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 grief and mourning that he he was very upset that this had happened, um. So. Fast forward a, f- a few more years. In t- 2010, he unfortunately passed away. And this is the first song I thought of when my parents were like, what song? What songs should we play at the funeral? And um, some of my dear friends in, in Louisville, uh, they're, two of them are actually music therapists as well, Julia Purcell and Cheyenne Mize. And then my dear friend, Chris Rodoffers, one of the best guitar players I know I've ever met and one of the sweetest people I know. And he, I asked them if they would be willing to do a version of it, which is more in the, in the style of our other local hero, Will Oldham, who goes by Bonnie Prince Billy. Um, and it's it, it's more close to his version of the song. But I even use parts of the lyrics in the eulogy that I um, I gave, and it just it it takes me to a a sad but also very sweet place of feeling okay that it's okay to be sad, um, having a space of a song to feel those feelings in. And then as a, a an instrumentalist and as a, a someone that doesn't particularly enjoy singing, um, I don't often listen to lyrics that closely, but somehow that day listening to this song, it just kind of went into my heart in one of the little pockets and has stayed there and every time I hear the song, I think about August ninth, nineteen ninety-five, and then I, I go back to May May eighth, two thousand ten, uh when he passed away. So to me it celebrates his love for the grateful dead. Um he had challenges with substance abuse. So I know that when he when that struggle is over, there was a, a gratitude that I think I, I assume that he had as well to be grateful that 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 nightmare was over as well. So it brings all these things together in a way that it feels real. It can be raw, but it's also a way to connect with with him and with my Louisville friends and knowing that I have support. And anytime I want to kind of visit my brother, I can, I can go back to Broke Down Palace. Well, let's listen to it uh, together. This is
1: Broke Down Palace by the Grateful Dead from their album American Beauty, released in
0: 1970. Just hearing them and all all parts of their sound take me to a special place.
1: Is that something? Is that a song that you do listen to? Um, you know, just casually, or because of the associations with it? Do you kind of have to, you know, be ready to listen to it?
0: I'll seek it out sometimes when I, when I feel like I, I, I need to. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not afraid. I like, I like going to these places and I it's what I also like to invite my patients to do as well. Um, we, we can, we can figure out some stuff when we sit in some of these tough thoughts and feelings.
1: I think that's fantastic advice that we can all take on multiple levels. Um, okay. Uh, we're going to head for a speed round now, Brian, you ready? Ready. Do you and your wife's musical tastes align?
0: No. How do they align the least? <laughs> <laughs> I would say the least is because I, I don't, she's a writer and a librarian and words are paramount. And, oh, and I see. Yes. So my my instrumental brain and I'm listening to every other part of the song and sometimes I have not heard one word they've said uh so that's but broader than that we do like a lot of the same things um but i think it's how we listen to it that's different
1: gotcha that's a good answer that's a music therapist's answer um you mentioned <laughs> that your kids what 17 and 14 and they would roll their eyes at the bangles i mean do they
0: have musical tastes that have brought anything to you sure so they they like a lot of the new um hip hop that is some of it is amazing and some of it um I'm not crazy about, and some of that has to do with me finally feeling like a, a real dad that I'm, you know, in Canada and out days, my dad thought that this this was not music and that it was not good and healthy. Um, so I feel like a real dad feeling that way about about my kids music I don't I don't like this and I don't like you listening to it (laughs) you're not a Um, real dad till you accidentally say and mean it kids these days yeah (laughs) turn that down it's too loud or something like that Um, oh that's great yeah some of the content is just uh it's it's a little flat for me and uh, and some of it's and this is like the new trap stuff it's there's just a, a little bit of it it's missing some stuff from the old hip hop that I used to like. So our younger one is a little more influenceable. Um and he likes some of the older rap as well. Um but they like everything. Uh we, we like to listen to things really loud in, in, in the car and I'm I'm not afraid of cuss words. So I, I let them listen to to all the stuff um they they feel like they wanna present to the world. Um so I'm not afraid. I'm 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 not that not that timid about it. I, I want them to, to feel like cuss words aren't, aren't the worst thing in the world.
1: All right. Cheers to that, too. Um, do you have a nickname that has stuck over the course of your life
0: that you would be willing to share? I mean, Shrek is it, it, it's a very easy <laughs> one. Uh, it's a German word. It means to scare or shock. Um, I, I hope it's more of like sneaking up behind you and, and giving you a, a startle. Uh, there was a movie called Indian summer back in the nineties and early two thousands where it's a a group of adults go back to this camp and all of the pranks that they do on each other, they call them Shreks. So there's a a, one scene where he's like, I'm the King of the Shreks. Uh, so I think it is more of a prank thing. Uh, and I think that's why they used it for the, the name of that ogre character, but most people call me Shrek outside of, uh, of this, and they spell it the same, even when they're writing me things it'll it'll just be spelled s h r e k that ogre character
1: um, when was the last time you purchased music that had physical form that you could hold
0: in your hand and it wasn't just a digital thing? Oh wow, so uh, I went to a concert not too long ago uh it's a Nashville buddy of mine named Her name is Lauren Balthrop, and I purchased her. Vinyl LP. Do you do karaoke? Uh, I don't. If I if I really get thrown into it. So I have a, a dear buddy. His name's Alex Smith. He goes by Howl Dottie. He has his own little... Uh, uh, all sorts of things that he does online, uh, including a show on 91.9, our local um, music station. And he has something called karaoke roulette, where you spin a song... And you have to sing that song. Uh, If you don't know it, you can default to salt and peppers, push it. Um, (laughs) But sometimes I'll go and and just support him. And if no one's really kind of getting getting first in line, they will say, oh, there's my buddy Brian Shrek. He's going to come up and spin the wheel, spin the wheel. So I don't even get a chance to to say no. And I I just I usually go with the flow and do it. Um, But it is not my favorite thing to do. If you were a championship wrestler, what
1: song would you enter the arena to? Oh wow! Um, probably the final countdown by Europe. Ah. I was camping once, and we it turned into like at three o'clock in the morning. The final hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, a bummer
0: too. Yeah, well,
1: and we were really annoying the people who were still or who weren't still <laughs> awake. Um, Speaking of which, if you were a cocktail or drink of some kind that was a distilled essence of Brian Shrek, what would it contain? Oh wow, I think it would
0: probably be um, uh, maybe like a hard kombucha. Maybe oh, get, get get some hippie stuff in there, but still have a little little kick to it that'll make you feel good. All right, um, what would wow. it be called? Uh, probably, uh, something, something that has to do with Shrek, like the King of the Shreks maybe, or, uh, listen to your Shrekards or listen to this Shrekard.
1: Listen to this Shrekard. We're going with that one. Um, All right. if you had to guess, what song would you say is the one you've listened to the
0: most times over the course of your life? Wow. Um, probably Computer Blue by Prince.
1: Song you wish you could hear again for the first time? Mm.
0: Wow. Um, let's do Naima by John Coltrane. Album you wish you can hear again for the first time? Hmm. Trying to think of like those early cassettes. Like uh, It wasn't Look With The Cat drug in by poison was the one after that or hysteria by Deaf Leopard, Probably let's go with that one.
1: Um, are there any songs that you'll avoid listening to either because you just can't stand them or because you don't want to be reminded of what they remind you of?
0: No, I, I, I tend to lean in and as a music therapist, yeah, I gave up a long time ago thinking that I don't like something just because of, of, of either a memory or a reason but even as, as grand as a genre, you know, I wasn't such a fan of 2000s country, but I lived in Cincinnati at the time and all of the patients loved it. And then I started to become friends with some of them as they came through Riverbend because uh, we had tried to take some of our patients backstage and meet them. And the country folks were always the sweetest. Uh, so I kind of fell in love with country and that that way of letting some of my, my guards down to be such a snob and be more of an open-minded connoisseur uh of you know for the most part at this point in my life I think the fact that someone has created this experience for me and they're giving it to me in a live setting and care that much that this is such a big part of their life I'm trying to think that this is good in any capacity and it should also be kind of looked at of this isn't um a a fast food meal that someone sat on and then they gave it to you. This is something that you could imagine is a delicious steak and I'm going to, I'm going to try to savor it in some way. Great answer. Um, If you could broadcast
1: a song into the head of everyone on the planet all at once, what song would you
0: use? Wow. Hmm. I guess if, it, if I'm if I'm going to do it to everyone, uh, it would probably be from Beethoven's Pathetic Sonata. Um, I think there's something just magical about how long it is, and i just imagine him shredding on the piano. And I think most people would probably be okay with it. Except the half of the world that you woke
1: up. <laughs> right. They wouldn't like it. Um, what would your 14 year old self, Brian Shrek, think of who you are today and the life that you live?
0: I think you'd think I'm pretty cool. I, I think both of us would be startled how bald I am. Um, cause back in 14, I had pretty long hair and I'm, I'm a cue ball now. Um, I think you never know what you're going to look like when you're older. And I remember watching old movies back in the eighties without realizing that people were as old as they were playing these parts. So I remember watching pump up the volume with Christian Slater and thinking as, you know, an eighth grader that I was going to look like Christian by the time I was a senior in high school. And I still look like a scrawny little hundred pound um, nerd. So. So yeah, um, I, I, would, I would give myself a thumbs up, I think.
1: Um, okay, it is time for you to recommend three people that you'll share this with that you think we might be able to get on someday.
0: Okay, so there's a few people I've talked to this morning. Um, one of them is a beautiful friend that lives here in town named Ben Soli. And he's a violin or a, a cellist and a beautiful singer-songwriter. Um, another friend who I've played music with from time to time. He's a, a honky tonk country rock fella named Tyler Lance Walker Gill. Uh, who's also one of my favorite folks. And then I, I did two more. Um, another buddy of mine named Scott Carney, who uh, was in a band called Wax Fang. And then my good buddy, Mark Charles Heidinger, who goes by Mark Charles. These are all musicians and they all have such strong, stories and they're brilliant folks and i I know that they have three songs in them for sure
1: well, we're gonna let you slide with the four. There is a rule. You broke the rule, but that's okay. Um, I like to break rules sometimes. Yeah, no, and, more. and 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 the your, the stuff you do, you get four for, for the, the the stuff you do. Um, <laughs> well, then you've done it, Brian. You got any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? We've really appreciated having you and talking no, to you.
0: No, I'm so it's it's been so much fun. Thank you for letting me take a stroll down Mound Memory Lane and uh, stop and smell the flowers on a busy Friday. So I'm grateful for that. That's, uh, that's a nice reminder, not just to finish the work week, but for every day that we should uh, to talk about Muhammad Ali one last time. Uh, don't count the days, make the days count. This could be the most important day of our life because it's all we have. Cheers to that. Thank you, Brian. Thank
1: you. We make three-song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Genquee is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is host and online content producer. Our production assistant is Jared the Intern, Gonzalez. Christophus is our executive producer. And our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. We're going to end today's show with another one of Brian's compositions that integrate a patient's heartbeat into a song. This is Irma's heartbeat song, Earth. Brian writes, quote, this piece was created for a loving and lovely family. Irma was a mother of many beautiful people. Her heartbeat loop completely informed the rhythmic and melodic motives that were layered over her. I invite you to go outside and take a walk by yourself and breathe in the air, drink some water, soak in the light, and connect with our mother, our earth, our love. By the way, Brian, if you're listening, our thoughts." are with you and everyone in Louisville right now keep listening